uh, we're going to be talking about uh, kind of an odd, I think, topic. Um, but the, the discussion is going to be, Lord, save me from your people. Um, and it's kind of based off this, this idea that I've heard actually quite a bit from folks, that, that they, they love Jesus, or they like Jesus, they appreciate Jesus, they just can't stand Christians. Um, have you guys heard that? Am I the only one? I feel like I hear that all the time, and I'm like, should I be the one offended? Um, maybe it's just me. But um, I feel like I hear that a lot. And um, so we're going to go through some of, those, some of those things. We're obviously not going to hit every single question that comes up in that kind of a genre. We're going to try and hit some of the main points. And the reason I think it's important is part of this gives us a little bit of introspective. We need that time sometimes to stop and to look and to see what of those things are actually true about us. Right? Because whether someone really is correct in their assessment of someone, you really should pause for a second to say, hmm, maybe I should take a second and really think about that. Right? Maybe so. so it gives us a second to kind of think through some of those things. Um, some of it actually comes down to people just saying they straight up hate the church. They just, they just can't stand institutional religion of, of any kind. Um, but for some reason, even if, even if they say they can't stand institutional religion, it usually focuses on Christianity for some reason. Um, so you might ask, how is this really part of the God I Don't Understand series? Um, a lot of times those statements come out of a place of hurt. Someone's hurt them. Someone has said something to them that's um, not just offended them, but has actually hurt them or their family. And so for some of them, that, that shades their view of God. And for the most part, it's, it's, you know, when we talk about this, it's going to be unbelievers that we're referring to, but there are a lot of people in the church. There are a lot of Christians who have kind of the same sort of thing. They love Jesus, but they just really can't stand the way church is or the way church is done or some of those things. So it kind of it kind of falls back on onto some of those things. Some of you here may have been really hurt by a church leader in the past, or by a group of church members, or something. So some of these things may resonate with you. Uh, there may have been some of these things that you've you've thought. Um, so we do want to take some time to to go through this. Um, And just like we've done in all of the other parts of this uh, series so far, we'd really like to start with some definitions. Because when we say the word church, or the word Christians, but specifically church, I want to kind of define that. So um, I want to define what the church is, since we're actually going to be using that, uh, that term a lot. So the church, uh, the church just means the assembly. That's all it means. It's the assembling of, well, that's kind of it. That's all it means, the assembly. It doesn't mean of anything, but it's just the assembly. But the, uh, the definition, and I got this particular one. It was, I think, the most succinct 
collect it. Um, it's from Grudem's Systematic Theology. He says, uh, the church is defined as the community of all true believers for all time. Which that was actually a pretty good definition. It's big enough to actually handle the whole thing. Um, but for the church, um, I think what we all should, should do is we should, we should talk about what the church is not. And I think that actually helps a little bit more. Um, but um, starting with uh, uh, kind of the first one, the church is not a building. And I think we've talked about that enough internally in the church. The church is not really the building. If the building wasn't here, we would all still meet. We'd still be the church. I think we've talked about that a lot. We'll come back to that in just a second because I think that's actually kind of a deeper thing than we really think about. Um, it's not a denomination. There's a lot of people who think that, especially unbelievers. They'll really focus in on a particular denomination. They think that's the church uh, or that's what they think of. Um, the church is not a political movement. That's also what it's treated as a lot of times in the world. It's a, it's a voter block, it's, it's, that's, but that's not what the, the church is. Uh, it's not a cultural phenomenon. It wasn't developed by culture for us to fix something, some moral ambiguity that needed to be cinched up. That's not what the church is either. Uh, actually, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I want to go back to this idea, the church is not a building. Because I think we should actually expand that a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verses 16 through 18. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in his age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. This whole idea of the church isn't a building, what it actually is, is it's us in a real sense. We really do house the Spirit of God. So in the past, if, you know, during the time of Jesus, if they, they wanted to go and to worship Yahweh, yeah, they, could, they could worship him anywhere. God is God anywhere. But if they wanted to actually offer a sacrifice, if they wanted to, um, you know, um, perform some aspect of their religious expression, they would go to the temple. And it was a centralized place where the Spirit of God was. And it was meant to be that. They, they would go and they would say, this, this is where the presence of God is. And when Solomon's temple was dedicated, that's where the Spirit of God actually went into. It was, this, it was a big deal. Filled with smoke and the glory was there. And they knew the glory of God is inside this temple, in the Holy of Holies. Um, what, they, what they found out, though, was that the temple was a foreshadowing. When 
Jesus was alive, he, he, he stood there at the temple and he said, tear down this temple and in three days I'll build it back again. He said, oh, this temple's been under you know, reconstruction for 40 some odd years and so how, how in the world are you going to do that? And, he, and it says in there that he was actually talking about his body. And so what we, what we understand is, is that the presence of God is actually in us. We really, truly are the temple of God. So when we are out in the world, instead of someone having to go somewhere to find God, we are the temple that goes throughout the world. That's a pretty crazy idea. But that's who we're supposed to be. It's pretty cool. right? So when we think about the church, it's a lot bigger than we're just not a building. We're just a group of people. It's like, yeah, but it's not just that we're a group of people. We actually are the temple of God. Anyway, um, it's, a, it's a cool thing to really think, think through. So the church is the assembly of the people. People are the temple. So when we're talking about the church today, we're talking about the assembly of the people. All right? Uh, I do want to go through one thing before we start going through some of the major questions that we might get. From different people, First um, Corinthians one twenty six, starting verse twenty six. Paul writes, "For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak." In the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. If we're part of the church, we are not part of the church because we were the best. We're not part of the church because. We were um, the first picked, like in dodgeball. It's we're not. We would be the leftovers. We are the foolish. We're the weak, and that's why God chose us. It's a humbling thing to think about, but what it does is it it makes us. It forces us to remember that who we are in the Lord is. Uh, who he's making us, not what we were. So as we go through this and as we talk about these things, we should have a humble attitude as we um, go through some of these questions because it's not as though we're somehow the elite folks, if that makes sense, right? All right. Um, As we talk about kind of this big question, uh, this big idea, um, you know, I love Jesus, I hate the church, kind of a thing. Um, we're going to talk about people's attitudes towards the church. So I think it's good for us to kind of stop and take a look around, not around the room, but just think about where we are culturally, uh, just, just in the United States. And if you were to compare it to maybe 60 years ago, we're in a radically different spot culturally than we were then. Um, 
So one good question is, what in the world happened? Um, the U.S. enjoyed uh, enjoyed a Christian majority for generations. Um, most people in the United States would affirm that they were that they were Christians. Um, I'm of the opinion, and we can argue afterwards if you want to, uh, but I'm of the opinion that um, the United States is not a Christian nation, mostly because I don't know what that, what that is. Like, what does that mean? Like, the nation itself is saved? Like, the nation chooses Jesus? Like, I don't know what that means. Now, if you mean that the majority of people in the United States were Christian, yeah, that's, that's a thing. That's a thing that happened, but the only sort of um, the only Christian nation that will ever exist is the coming kingdom. Like really, because that would be Jesus as our King, that will actually live out Christianity as the standard, and everyone will be expected to do that. And that'll really be the only time where we'll be a Christian nation, and then it will kind of be a, it'll be a whole thing at that point. The whole world will be that kingdom. That's really the only political identity that the church really has, is that future coming kingdom. You know, so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that as we talk through some of these things in this Christian majority, that it somehow is this uh, uniquely American experience, because it's not. It's, uh, it's this idea that where there are believers, that's where the kingdom of God is, and that's where the Lord is, right? Now, in the United States, something happened culturally from the 60s onward, uh, and there's, I think there's a lot of people that would look and see that there's some sort of cultural shift that t- that's taken place, but uh, I think what really happened was Christianity, we kind of just lost our Christian capital, it was slowly slowly losing steam after a while. Secularism was really taking a toll, and honestly, after the 60s, it kind of hit through kind of the social areas, and Christianity stopped becoming, the, uh, or it stopped to be, ceased to be the favored religion from that way onward uh, until today, where I'd say that the majority of people would see Christianity as a negative force in the world, if you ask a lot of people, they would see uh, religion in general, but oftentimes it's Christianity specifically is the enemy of logic and science, which I think is a lot of hogwash. But uh, they would say that th- that's that's what it is. Christianity is is a enemy to logic and and to science and scientism. Um, they'd say the church is a force for violence and bigotry. That's a lot of people's perspective. You know, and they'll point to an extremist group like Westboro Baptist, and they go, see, look at, the, look at Christians. We're like, ah. you know, they call themselves Christians, but I've never once heard anything Christ-like come out of their mouths. So I don't know that we would ever identify with those folks. Um, but the world is, they find it really easy to separate Jesus from the church. So they see the church and they see Christians and they see that as, as bad. 
but then they still like a lot of the things that they see in Jesus. A lot of the things that he, see, that he says, a lot of the stories. Uh, so they like to pull in those things. And what they're actually doing is they're, they're going through and they're taking out the bits and the pieces that they like. They're jamming them together and saying, like, this, this is the Jesus that I like. Um, you ever heard of the Thomas Jefferson Bible? That's kind of what he did. As he went through and he cut out the parts of the Bible he didn't like. And he re, uh, rebound it, and that was his Bible. It was much shorter. Uh, had all the supernatural parts taken out. It must have been really short. Um, but th- I think that's, that's what a lot of people like to do. They like to pick and choose and, and do that. What they get at the end is really doesn't resemble anything like, like the real thing. So anyway, let's start with this. So we're going to start with a few questions. Okay, we're going to go over, I think, four specific questions. So question one that you, you probably have heard or, or might hear. Jesus was real with people, but Christians are hypocrites. You ever heard that one? Christians are hypocrites. That's one I've heard a lot. Um, what's interesting is um, a lot of times they don't define what that really means. Um, do they mean that we say that we're perfect, but we actually make a lot of mistakes? Because I don't know about you, but I don't, I try not to say that I'm perfect or that's, that's who I am, that I, that I never make mistakes or, or anything like that. But for some reason, they a lot of times look at, at Christians and, and they'll see They'll see something take place and they'll see, see, you're a hypocrite. Now, if they're talking about a false righteousness, well, I think that we would agree. False righteousness, yeah. Uh, that is, uh, is bad. We don't like that. And in fact, Jesus has a lot to say about false righteousness. Uh, when we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of the... Um, examples, the bad examples that he would use were of the religious leaders of the day. They were exhibiting a false righteousness. On the outside, they would be one way, but they would be something different on the inside. And so if that's, if that's what they're looking at, yeah, then I would, I would agree with that. So then the question has to be, okay, how much of that is is them just not liking Christians and making something up. But what part of that do we need to own? That maybe we say one thing, but we do something different. Do we, well, do we share moral and virtuous victories with other people? But then we, we don't share the grace that we receive in our failures. Are we reluctant to ask forgiveness from other people? And that has an air of hypocrisy. I mean, for some of us, maybe, maybe there is a bit of that. And I think, I think one piece of that is we, we, we don't want to drag Jesus' name through the mud. So maybe we just don't acknowledge some of the things, but, but honestly, 
I think if we, if we fail, and fail in a way that others can see, that's the opportunity for the gospel right there. For us to actually show, hey, I'm receiving grace from the Lord, and, and to actually be able to talk to someone about how that works. How the Lord has saved us, and, and how we can rely on his righteousness and not our own. I think we sometimes miss some of those opportunities. To do that. So I think for that particular question, I think some of it might be just not focused properly on actions versus what they, uh, the expectation is. But for some of that, maybe, maybe we do need to share more of our failures and show how we're receiving grace. Maybe we're missing some of those opportunities. So maybe that's when we kind of take on the chin sometimes. Maybe we should do that. Uh, second question. Jesus was actually good, but Christians act holy and pious, but are just the same as everybody else. Now, that sounds a lot like the hypocrisy thing, but a little bit different. Uh, have you ever interacted with someone over a, a long period of time and then found out that they were a Christian and you were shocked? You're... Christian, sort of like there is not one part of your life, your words, your anything that would have led me to believe that you're a Christian or that you follow Jesus. There are some believers that act so worldly, just like everybody else. It may, no, it's, and it's not always in like a overtly evil kind of way. That's not what I'm saying. But there's never any aspect of their conversation, their discussion, what they do that would lead anyone to believe that they're a follower of Jesus. They're just like everyone else. And I think at that point, it's just real confusing. I had, I had no idea that you were a follower of Jesus. And I think it throws off a lot of people too. What's, what's interesting is I think there are a lot of believers that think that they're the cool Christian. I can, I can hang out with everybody. I can do everything and say, have all the conversations about whatever. And... You know, I'm not a I'm not a stuffy Christian, and uh, yeah. So they actually think that it's a virtuous thing, but the thing is, is that remember we're supposed to be the temple of God. We're supposed to bring the Lord with us everywhere we go, and so sometimes we have to remember that. Oh yeah, Jesus is with me here. It doesn't mean that we always have to, you know, start every conversation with a word of prayer. That would be weird. Um, doesn't mean that our radio is only set to K-Love. Okay, maybe, maybe. Uh, you know, there's, there's certain things that I'm not saying that you, that you have to do it a certain way that way, but do we bring Jesus with us where we go? 
Or is it shocking to people that, who actually follow Jesus? Um, in the church, if uh, someone were to come into, into a church and they saw no difference between what happened in a church or a church gathering than any other gathering, uh, it'd be a little... I think it would be a little odd. And there's some, there some church I've been to, a couple of churches, where even the songs that are sung, they were secular songs. Like they, had, they weren't hymns or worship songs at all. They were secular songs. I mean, they were done well. And they had the lasers, and they had the smoke machine kind of stuff going on. And I heard a message that You know, it's just, it, was like a, it was like a TED Talk, almost, like an encouraging TED Talk, you know? And uh, you get to a certain point where then believers and unbelievers, you can't distinguish between who here actually knows Jesus and is this actually a church anymore and what's happening? And I think sometimes that gets confusing. In the, in the early church, um, in the first few hundred years of the church, the church always felt like they were outsiders everywhere they went. But at the same time, they were described as, as being very, very a part of the community at the same time. They said that it was the oddest thing. This is a, a description that, that others would give, is that they seem like foreigners and yet the most dedicated citizens at the same time. That they hold all these things loosely, but at the same time are so loyal to their, to their neighbors. That was the testimony that they had, that they, were, that they would live lives that showed that they were from another place but they were present and it's that very, that's that dichotomy where people would say what are you people all about they would start asking these questions who is this God why are you like this and it's when you're able to show that difference that's where the Lord is actually able to use your life and your words to reach people. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. We as... We as the church, 
we're supposed to be the, the connective tissue. We're supposed to be the body, the actual body of Jesus on earth. That's who we're supposed to be. And so if there can be no discernible difference between us and the world, then what's really the point? How can that be? How can we be both of those things at the same time? Because if we're living this way, it's very hard for us to continue to live like everybody else. And so you really can't have two trajectories. You can only really have one. So for this, we really do have to kind of have a little introspection. The church is made up of the body of Christ, and so there's really not a place for unbelievers to come in to really feel like they're apart. Now, understand what I mean by that. We obviously open up our doors on Sunday morning, and some of you this morning might be here and say, I'm not, I'm not a believer. I'm just here checking stuff out, and that's totally fine. The thing is, is that when you come, you know, the message that's preached from here is a message for believers. It's a message for people who know who Jesus is. And the body is made up of people that are his. They're his people. The church is his family, his household, his garden. That's how we're described. We're called his possession. We're his bride. He's coming back for his bride. Uh, if, If we're all of those things, then when unbelievers come in, there should be this very weird, weird thing. It should feel welcome, right? We have people in the front welcoming people in, and we should be kind, and you can get a cup of coffee, and so we feel okay there. But at the same time, this isn't, this isn't necessarily the most comfortable place for non-believers to be in. A lot of stuff we talk about up here, not the most comfortable things to hear when you're not a believer of Jesus. And that's okay. And if you are here this morning and you are not a believer, we, we welcome you here. But we pray that the more you're here, the more you'll change. And the more that you'll hear that the Lord wants you to change. And Jesus even knew that in his church there was going to be amongst believers, there were going to be the pretenders. So, Matthew chapter 12, uh, verses 24 through 30, gives the parable of the wheat and the tares. Um, you guys know this story? The master went and planted a crop. He planted wheat. And then in the, under the cover of night, you know, the enemy came and he planted tares. And tares, they look like wheat, but they're not. You got to really look close. You got to really have a keen eye, know what you're doing to tell the difference. And so, in the middle of the night, he came, did that, and then, um, you know, a little while later, after they started to grow, one of the hired hands said, "Oh my goodness, there's tears in here." I said, "Should we tear them up? Not different tear. Should we pull them up?" 
Master said, no, leave them. We'll sort it out at the harvest. Just let them all grow, and then we'll figure it out at the end. And it's a, it's a picture of what happens in the church. Is that the Lord knows that not everybody who's in the church, who's, who says that they're a believer, who's, who's a member, who's you know, participating in, in ministry, not all believers. Some of us are tares, and we won't know till the end. Some of us are so good at it, we won't know till judgment day. Well, Jesus knows that. Um, so the Lord will take care of it, because you can't fool him. Matthew chapter 7, you even have um, where uh, Jesus says, Not everyone who cries out to me and says, Lord, Lord, on that day, on the day of judgment, um, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Just this idea that, yeah, there are pretenders in the church, and that, that is something that happens. And that, that can be what a lot of people see. They might see someone who is a pretender and know that and see, see, you guys are all, you're just like everybody else. So you know what? Jesus will take care of it. That's not something that we have to really concern ourselves a lot with. Obviously, if we see it, we can confront it. But if it's something that slips our gaze or gets past what we, we can do, the Lord will take care of it. All right, third question. Uh, Jesus welcomes anyone just the way they are, but Christians are so unwelcoming. Um, yeah, well, we talked a little bit before about it's kind of a natural thing for unbelievers to kind of feel like outsiders because uh, a lot of times they'll come in and they're confronted with truth or they're confronted with uh, the practice of holiness of God. Uh, however, at the same time, when, when Jesus says, um, Jesus would say to the people, you know, those who have eyes to see and, and ears to hear, they're the ones who will continue. They're the ones who will pursue him. Jesus, Jesus was okay speaking to a crowd and then most of the crowd leaving. Because he knew that if he spoke the words of truth, that there were going to be those who had eyes to see and ears to hear who would stick around. And sometimes it was only a few that would stay. There's the one, uh, the one story of the ten lepers Remember this one? Jesus heals ten men of leprosy. He says, okay, go show yourselves to the, uh, to the priests, to the, to the priests at the temple. That's how you'd be able to go home if you had leprosy. Um, and you were healed. They all left except for one. One stayed and wanted to thank Jesus. One stuck around. Ten were healed, one stuck around. Uh, Jesus heals 5,000. He preaches to, to them. Or I'm sorry, he doesn't heal them. He feeds the 5,000 and he preaches to them and they all want to make him their king and 
Then he starts talking about suffering and dying and you have to drink my blood and eat my flesh. And you know Jesus is just doing it so that they'll get riled up. And yep, they all left. So it's just the 12 standing there again. See, Jesus didn't really care if everybody stuck around. Jesus knew that the people who heard, if they had eyes to see, ears to hear, would stay. He knew that if they heard, they knew that Jesus' words were true and they were worth pursuing. Right? Our hope and prayer is that when people come, they're unbelievers, that, yeah, it would be kind of uncomfortable and they would be thinking through some of those things and that they would have eyes to see and ears to hear and would stick around. But it doesn't mean we change the message up here which we already have talked about. See, the whole, the whole point is, is that if, if unbelievers do come, they are outsiders. But if they stick around, and they keep listening, and they believe, and they repent, and there's contrition, and, you know, from a reality of their own sin, and there should be this reconsideration of who they are and what they're doing and what's going on. These things, this is the way it should go. So this idea that we're unwelcoming. You know, we, we, we shouldn't be changing what the message is so that anybody feels comfortable being here. Because it's not, that's not what our... That's not what we're supposed to be doing. And so as far as, as, far as that goes, and the, and the unwelcoming part of that, I think, has to do sometimes with some of the political stances that uh, a lot of people take. And um, also, like Christian leaders, you heard that in the news? That always makes me laugh when they go, Christian leaders said this. I'm like, who are these Christian leaders? When did we elect them? Who gets to go on to the news and speak for all of us of what we think and what our opinions are or what we think of something? I just think it's funny that there's this handful of people that get to do that for some reason. Um. But all that to say, a lot of times what happens is that some of the teachings that, that come out of the church or some of the teachings that are coming out of the scriptures, they get twisted in such a way to where it makes it to where uh, we're, not, we're not inclusive of everybody. You know, not everybody is, is part of the church. And some of you may have felt that when we, um, when we talk about membership, you know, as far as you know, being a, being a part of children's ministry. Well, we prefer that you would be a member. Just meaning that, you know, you're, you're, you're like family. We were saying, hey, I'm here to stay, and I'm holding to what, what we all believe and teach here. And so, yeah, I think, I think that's something that we hold as important. I don't know. 
Maybe that's something that can make someone feel unwelcome. But, um, and I think one of the aspects of that too is they would say, well, it's Jesus. See, Jesus, he was really cool with hanging out with sinners and, you know, he was called a glutton and a wine bibber and, you know, Jesus was, had, had no problem hanging out with nefarious folks. So everybody should feel welcome coming into the church, right? We should make it so that everybody can, can be here. Uh, the thing is, is that Jesus was normally going into their houses. Like he was invited to go in. So that's a little bit different than here, right? Uh, but part of that too is, is Jesus, when Jesus would go somewhere, he, he didn't change who he was. It was quite the opposite. When he went there, they were affected by him. He brought light to their house, right? So it was Jesus actually bringing truth there. Uh, he, would, he would leave them with a dose of the truth. Um, but if we, if we instead focused on, uh, if the service that we had was focused on unbelievers feeling safe and feeling secure, uh, and feeling like they really belonged here without having to uh, really interact with the teachings of Jesus. Uh, honestly, at that point, we cease to be a worship service. We, we're, we're no longer focused on Jesus. We're now focused on, on people. And that's kind of not what a worship service is. Right? We should be worshiping the Lord, not making it to where everybody feels like they can be here. Um, I don't want to fall into a, a crazy hole here, but I did want to talk a little bit about identity politics because I think this is where this, uh, this idea, this, this welcoming and unwelcoming piece um, kind of, uh, I think this is where it gets discussed a lot. Um, in our culture right now. Um, I'll actually bring up a scenario that someone uh, brought up with me not too long ago. Um, But they said, what if someone who identified as trans uh, wanted to come and join refuge, what would we do? Kind of falling under this idea of, are we welcoming or not welcoming? Right? Um, I think, honestly, I, I, personally, I think that the fundamental question is wrong. Um, I think that, that P, and, and it has to do with someone being referred to as trans. Um, People are the imagers of God. Human beings are. Uh, we have human dignity as individuals. Uh, we have our own thoughts and emotions and experiences and choices, and those choices have consequences. And why would I ever boil someone down to one descriptor as the defining thing for that individual? as though it somehow was this overarching idea and concept that enveloped them to the point where I feel like I know and understand them from one term. 
That's terrible. That's terrible to do to somebody. That's not fitting a human being. Human beings are not to be treated that way. Uh, Identity politics is wrong because it forces people into one mold or descriptor to define them. And I think that's terrible. Every person is deserving of human dignity and needs to be addressed as a human being, as God intended human beings to be addressed, which is with love and respect and with honor, and as individuals. And so rather than giving a category of a person If you instead had for me a name and we could go talk to somebody, I think that scenario all of a sudden completely breaks down, doesn't it? Because then there's someone we can get to know, someone we can talk to. We can get to know their background and who they are and some of the struggles and some of the things. And now we've got a completely different story, don't we? And I think we focus on that and we don't really get into any of of the problems that we normally see. Now, then the bigger question becomes, can that person be saved without changing who they are. It's like, uh, nobody can be saved without a transformation. There's nobody who can be saved without them, their whole being being transformed. Some people say, well, I was born this way. I was like, yeah, we all were. We all were born sinners. And guess what? It's not good enough. Lord needs to change us. And so I don't see it as changing our message one bit. It doesn't change the gospel. It doesn't change anything. And so I don't really know why it's an issue. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 10 discusses that. Um, in the interest of time, though, we're going to go to, to our next verse here, or next uh, question here. Uh, Jesus was so loving to everyone, but Christians, Christians are so mean-spirited. Have you heard this one? I mean, we're mean-spirited individuals, people as a group. Uh, for a lot of people who have issues with the church, this is, this is kind of a big one. Um, how can we be so bigoted and say that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Have you heard that one? How can we make such a declaration? Jesus is the only way. Have you seen those bumper stickers coexist? This is the different symbols of the different things. There was a there was a Christian researcher who made one and had a bunch of other symbols that said contradict. Said they can't all be right kind of comes down to that too, but um, this, this idea that there's only one way to heaven is really offensive to a lot of people, even though it'd be impossible for them to call whoever they wanted by dialing random numbers on the phone, right? Just give me a call. What's your number? doesn't matter. Whatever number you dial, it's going to be me. It's going to work. How does that work? 
It just does. It just works. You can dial whatever number you want. There are so many parts of our lives where we have to be real specific. It only works a certain way, and we're totally fine with that. Yet when it comes to the most important aspect of our existence, which would be, you know, matters of eternity, eternal life, things like that, people are willing to throw it up to chance or make it a a preference kind of a thing. But this idea that, you know, there's only one way from the from beginning to end in Scripture, it, it's made very clear that Yahweh is the only God. When Jesus right, Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only name by which people can be saved. That's it. So, but that's so narrow-minded. It's so narrow-minded. Jesus wasn't like that. He was very inclusive. He was very inviting. It's like, well, John chapter 14, it's actually Jesus that says that. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That can be seen as Mean-spirited, I guess. Or if it's him informing, then that's actually a pretty loving thing. Hey, I just wanted you to know, I'm the only way to the Father, so you should probably go through me. Um, It's Jesus himself that is very narrow-minded in this way. And so this is where it actually all kind of pieces together, and it, it, it... this Jesus that they built, this, this welcoming, inclusive Jesus who only talks about love and peace, and this Jesus doesn't exist. It's not a real Jesus. At least it's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's, it's a, a Jesus of their own making. They have gone through and pieced him together, um, made some sort of a Frankenstein Jesus that they are really happy with, they really enjoy, um, you know, refuge, can, can we be hypocrites? Yeah, we, we, we can, you know, can, are we, uh, are sometimes we putting up a, a front and we're not really as righteous as we say we are? Yeah, we, we, we can do that and that's true. Can some, can we be unwelcoming sometimes? Yeah. Okay. Can we be mean-spirited? Yeah, of course. I mean, to say that none of these things are, are issues is, is, would be incorrect, but to say that that's the defining nature of, of the church, I think, is, is incorrect. But here's really the bigger problem, is... When they, they, they say these particular things, these are the things they don't like about Christians, these are the things they don't like about that. What they're actually saying is they don't like the Jesus of the Bible. So many of the things that people would complain about, we get them directly from Jesus. 
This is, this is, this is it. This is Christianity 101. Here's, here's really the big, the big issue. Is that the world is really just going to hate us. That's just what's going to happen. Sorry, it wasn't, it's not the most like pleasing conclusion. But the world's going to hate us. They will. In, in fact, we're promised tribulation. John chapter 16 Verse 33. This is Jesus talking. I've said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. If we really are following Jesus how we're supposed to, the world is not going to like us. And that's the way it is. And it shouldn't surprise us because Jesus promised us that. He promised that the world would not like us. And, and you know what? Jesus isn't here. Jesus is seated in heaven on a throne. And he'll return one day. If Jesus was here, the attacks of the world would be focused on him. But he's not here. So where instead are they focused? On his body. They're focused on the church. They're focused on us. And so the fact that people hate us, eh, par for the course. That actually means that we're probably doing something right. I mean, woe to us if no one ever disagrees with us, no one ever dislikes us for taking the stance, taking the side of Jesus, taking the stance of uh, being a follower of him. Because then maybe we're not saying it correctly. Refuge if... uh, if we really live out our lives, live out our lives as the real Jesus would, we live out his words. The world is really going to hate us, but we together need to endure to the end. And we will endure to the end. And we will live lives of overcomers and we do it for the sake of Jesus and we keep talking and we keep speaking so that those with ears to hear with eyes to see will know the real gospel will understand who Jesus is so that they also will become disciples, which is really the reason why we're still here. That others might, others might come to know him. They might become disciples, and they also might be overcomers. So, the road is rough. It's going to get rougher. And that's okay. 
We have the Lord and we have each other. It's all going to be all right. Father, we, um, we do confess this morning we are not always the best representatives of you. Lord, we do fail. Lord, we sometimes resemble some of those accusations we receive. We, we do, Lord, falter the things you've called us to do. But Lord, at the same time, God, I pray that you would encourage us from your word. I pray that we would minister to each other. Lord, that we would continue to walk on this narrow road that you've set before us. Lord, I pray that we'd live lives that are worthy of the gospel. I pray that we would Lord, look to each other for for help. Lord, if we're just not feeling like we can we can make it, if we're just not feeling like we can endure, Lord, I pray that we would Lord, reach out to somebody that we would we would talk to someone, God. I pray that we would we would be a people who would look to you for the strength to live lives that Lord honor you. Lord, I pray as we go out into the world, into this culture that generally dislikes us, Lord, I pray that we would continue to speak things that are true, that we would continue to live lives that exemplify you so that those who, Lord, are being drawn to you, Lord, they would know who to talk to. They would know what temple to go to to interact with God. To interact with, with your spirit. And Lord, we pray that as we continue on this week, Lord, we would uh, continue to look to you for our encouragement. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.